please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. As you turn to Luke 17, just a reminder as to where we are. We're in this section of the Gospel of Luke dealing with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. We're going to be reminded of that in verse 11. Luke's going to remind us that thematically what we see is that Jesus is, is headed toward the cross, toward the fulfillment of his earthly ministry, the culmination of all of human history. And I was talking with Mike this, this week and, and talking about where we are and the, the gospel of Luke and where we're headed. And I said, I, I think that we may even uh, arrive in, uh, the, at the resurrection in the gospel of Luke on Easter. And, and Mike said he'd believe it when he, when he saw it. Um, but but I, I think that's kind of where we're headed. So we're, we could, by, by uh, the summer of, of next year, be in a, a whole new book of the Bible. So it's kind of exciting to, to see how the Lord is, is working his way as, as we as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. And we're here this morning in Luke 17, uh, verses 1 through 6. And if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke 17, uh, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You may be seated. May we be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. And and let's, let's pray once again to the Lord to direct our path. And Father, we do pray for that. We pray for our hearts to be open and receptive to your word this morning. We pray that you would give us hearts of faith that lead to obedience. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings were designed to live in community. We were designed to live in relationship with one another. And maybe you've seen studies of what happens whenever children are, are isolated from parents at young ages and some of the things that happen developmentally to those children sometimes, or, or seeing things that have happened with prisoners mentally who are kept in isolation, or, or maybe you saw the movie uh, Castaway and saw how Tom Hanks began talking to a volleyball. I mean, we were designed to live in community with one another. I was reading a study this past week that talked about how individuals who don't have an extensive social network, who are very isolated, those individuals are twice as likely to die in a given year as people who do have an extensive social network. And it was true at at any age, a person who doesn't have an extensive social network is twice as likely to die as a person who has friends and family and and co-workers. And and they talked about how isolation is a greater health risk than smoking. It's a greater health risk than alcoholism, than obesity. isolationism is is a terrible thing for a person to undergo. And what's true physically and what's true mentally for us is, is also true for us spiritually. We were designed by God to exist in a community. 
a church was designed to be a, a community of faith. You and I weren't designed to live the Christian life in, in isolation. You and I were designed by God to exist in a church, in a community of faith, and, and to do church in community. Proverbs 18.1 says, The one who, who separates himself uh, seeks his own desire, and he rages against wise judgment, wise counsel. And maybe uh, this morning... Uh, there are, are some people who would argue, you know what, I don't even need a church. I don't even need to come in and sit in a bunch of, with a bunch of Christians. I can do church on my own in my pajamas, uh, listening to sermons on the radio, or I can listen to sermons on the internet or CDs, and, and that's all I need. Or a person might say, you know what, I, all I need in my Christian life, it's, it's kind of a personal thing, a private thing, my, my Christianity, and so I can come into a church and, and sit down on a Sunday morning and, and listen to some, some singing and, and listen to someone teach from the Scripture, and, and that's all I need for my Christian life in terms of community. I don't need to be involved in the life of the church beyond a, a Sunday morning. Or a person might say, okay, well, I, I know I need to be involved more than a Sunday morning. I'm going to be involved in some midweek activities, or I'm going to be involved in some small group things. But, but even as they do that, they're very guarded with their hearts. And the idea of being transparent with other people is, is foreign to them. They're reluctant to do so. What I want you to grasp as we look at Luke 17, 1 through 6 is that Jesus assumes that we're going to be living our life as a part of a community, that we're going to be in relationships with one another. In fact, that the central idea that I want you to grasp as we go through these verses is that the believer pursues holiness within the context of community. The believer, he or she, pursues holiness, pursues righteousness in the context of a community. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at six aspects, six ways of, of how we pursue holiness within the context of a community of faith, all right? Or I guess you could put it negatively, six ways that we avoid sin in the context of a community. But let's put it positively. Six ways that we pursue righteousness and pursue holiness within the context of of the community of faith, all right? Let's go ahead and jump right in. Number one, what do we do is we pursue holiness within the context of your community. Number one, we acknowledge the reality of temptation. We acknowledge the reality of temptation. Look at verse one. He said to his disciples, now remember in verse one of chapter 16, he was talking to his disciples, and then in verse 14, the Pharisees are overhearing some things, and so he gets sidetracked and, and talks a little about to the Pharisees, and now he's back talking to his disciples, and he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are, are sure to come, and that, that word temptation means enticement, or it means a, a stumbling block towards obedience, and the idea is that, that here's the path of obedience that God calls a person to walk, and there are going to be things that, that trap him or her as they're trying to pursue obedience to God. There's going to be stumbling blocks that are placed in their path, and as they try to be obedient to God, they're going to, to trip over some things. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 talks about how someday the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin. That's the same word there, all causes of sin, all lawbreakers. 1 John 2.10 says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. That's the same word that's translated temptations here in Luke 17. It's the idea that as a person tries to pursue 
the path that God has called them to pursue, there are going to be things that entice them away from that path or cause them to stumble as they walk that path. And Jesus here in verse 1 says these temptations to sin are, are sure to come. It's, it's certain that these things are going to exist. It's been said that there are two things that are certain in life, right? Death and taxes. I, I can think of more things that, that seem to be pretty certain in life. I, I know with certainty that eventually, no matter how many times I, I go to my car successfully carrying a big glass of water or a, a Diet Coke or something and, and carrying some books and, and a computer, I, I know that no matter how, how many times I do it successfully, eventually I'm going to be covered in Diet Coke. It's, it's just inevitable. Uh, I know that whenever I purchase a car, be it a new car or a used car, uh, someday that car is going to leave me stranded on the side of the road. No matter how reliable it is, someday that car is going to break down. We know as, as parents, when we hold that, that newborn baby in our, our arms, we know that someday uh, that little child is going to break our hearts. You know, they're going to leave us someday. There's going to be some sort of separate. We know that, that we know there are things in life that are certain. And Jesus says one of those things that's certain is that temptations, enticements to sin are going to take place. It's certain to happen. It's kind of interesting to me, but as we talk about what some of these enticements to sin are, as we talk about some of the things that exist within the context of the church, because what Jesus is saying here is it's not just outside that there are going to be these, these, these people that place stumbling blocks in your path toward holiness. He's saying within the church, within the community of faith, there are going to be people or individuals that entice you, that, that cause you to stumble or try to cause you to stumble. What's interesting to me is that sometimes whenever we talk about these dangers that exist within the church, the person who talks about these dangers is labeled divisive or argumentative. And, and I think sometimes we can say these things as we talk about false teachers. We can say some things in some ways that perhaps aren't, aren't godly, aren't the right way to talk about those dangers. But Sometimes I think the frustration is, is misplaced. In other words, the person who's talking about heresy isn't the person causing the division. As Jared Wilson put it, he says, uh, talking about heretics isn't divisive. Being a heretic is divisive, right? This past week uh, on Thursday was Ellie's birthday. And one of the little birthday treats that she had was a free uh, $3 uh, gift certificate to Toys R Us. And so I've, I've mentioned before Ellie's uh, ability to find value and to, to compare different types of value. And we walked into Toys R Us, and, and I thought, $3, how hard can this be, right? There's probably like two items that are $3, and we'll be out of there, right? Well, we walk in, and uh, Toys R Us, these, these wicked people, what they had done is they had taken uh, these bins, and there were three sections of bins, and each, and each section had, a, I don't know, about nine different bins full of toys, and one section was full of $1 toys. It gets worse. The other section was full of $2 toys, and the other section was full of, yeah, $3 toys. And so my uh, value-calculating daughter walks in, and she, first of all, analyzes every combination of three toys that she can get for 
for a dollar. Then she realizes, okay, now what two toys might I be willing to give up for one of the $2 toys? And then finally, is there any $3 toy that's worth getting rid of, of any of these other options that I've, that I've laid out here? Um, so several days later, when we're leaving the store, <laughs> uh, my daughter looks at me, and, 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 I, and I, I'm a terrible shopper too. I mean, I'm, I'm very similar to Ellie, so I understand what she's doing here. And, but I was, I was the, the model of a good dad, birthday dad. I'm just, I just stand there. Yeah, that is an option. That is too. Yeah, that too. My daughter has the audacity to look at me as we're walking out of the store several days later, and she says, Dad, that took a really long time. You should have just waited in the car and, <laughs> instead of slowing us down. Said, really? That's, that's your take on what just happened here, right? You know, sometimes as we talk about the reality of sin and we talk about the reality of, of, of dangerous people in the church and we talk about division in the church and heresies, sometimes the person talking about the divisions and, and the heresies is a person who's de- labeled divisive. We have to acknowledge the reality of temptation that exists within the church and that, that Scripture teaches us that there are going to be dangers that arise inside the church. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, and teachings of demons. In other words, within the context of the church, there are going to be demonic thought patterns that begin to be tr- teached as truth. That is going to take place, Paul says. That's divisive. That's a stumbling block toward pursuing righteousness in the community of faith. 2 Peter 2, Peter says, False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, that is, that is teachings that are destructive to the faith, stumbling blocks, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. It's interesting, he talks about their, their carrying people off in the terms of, of sensual sins, sexual sins, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so what's going to take place is people try to pursue holiness within the context of the community of faith. There are going to be temptations toward materialism, and there are going to be temptations toward sensuality that exist among other believers within teachings claiming grace. They're going to cause people to pursue a path that's contrary from the path that Christ calls us to walk upon. Paul says in Acts 20, 29, as he's talking to the elders from Ephesus, he says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. Don't be deceived. Don't be naive. It's one thing to be surprised by danger. It's another thing to be warned of danger and inattentive to it. Acknowledge the reality of sin. Don't treat sin in the church casually or cavalierly. Recognize the danger that exists within the church, within the community of faith, toward pursuit of righteousness. So that's number one, acknowledge the reality of temptation. 
Number two, number two, don't become a trap for others. Jesus says, he's saying to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. That word uh, woe means, to, means alas or, or pain or displeasure. Uh, you don't want to be the one that's causing other people to sin. As you think about that path and the stumbling block that exists upon staff, on paths sometimes as people try to be obedient, you don't be the, want to be the one that introduces that stumbling block to them. You don't be the one to be the one that causes them to sin. Christ says it's woe to you or alas to you, pain, displeasure. Now, what are some examples of types of stumbling blocks, temptations to sin that we might place in front of others? What might cause us to become a stumbling block? Well, one thing is to participate in conduct that, that defames Christ's name, that maligns Christ's name. Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you not dishonor God? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, here's some people who are talking about the law and boasting about how we have the law, and then as they live their lives in a way that's contrary to the law, God's name is blasphemed. 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And so one way that we introduce stumbling blocks into the lives of others and become a trap for others as we exist in this community of faith is to malign Christ's name through our conduct. We become gossips. We become sensualists. We, we talk about things that are going to cause other people to stumble. We, we live a lifestyle of materialism that causes other people to say, well, I, I guess it's okay to live in that fashion. We malign the name of Christ Another way that we can become a trap for others is by celebrating sin. In fact, uh, keep your fingers there in Luke 17. And if you would, just turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, just a couple books over. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Something really interesting takes place here in the church in Corinth. And the church of Corinth was a very uh, worldly church. They were very much in a culture like the culture in which we exist today, and the church in Corinth was really buying into a lot of the, the sensual practices of their culture. And something has happened in verse 1 of chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is a type of sexual immorality that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. In other words, this, this person within the church was in a relationship with his stepmother. And verse 2 says, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so what had happened here is this man had been involved in an immoral relationship with his stepmother and the Corinthians misunderstanding grace had been kind of a little bit arrogant. Look how gracious we are. 
here's this person involved in this terrible sin, and yet we still love them, we still welcome them as a brother, and that's exactly what exists in our church today, isn't it? In the name of unity, in the name of being a compassionate church, we tolerate behaviors that are clearly contrary to Scripture and call the people who are engaged in these sexual moralities or involved in this in, uh, in, in maligning other people or involved in pur- a pursuit of materialism that is ungodly. We allow these, these sins to exist within the context of the church and say, grace. Whenever someone comes into this, this room as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ on a Sunday morning, I would hope that there would be no one that would come into this room who, who wouldn't feel loved and cared for, right? We would hope that, that no matter what baggage a person was bringing into this room as they came in here to, to uh, participate in our worship services, they would say, man, I, I know that despite what's taken place in my past, these people love me. There's, there's not judgmentalism going on here, a condemning spirit. But if we're talking about pursuing holiness in the context of the community of faith, as people come into this fellowship and they identify themselves as, okay, now I'm not just a person attending the worship service. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a, I'm a member of this fellowship. As a person makes that public pro- proclamation of a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would hope that we would all agree that there's now a standard of holiness to which we call people. And as a person departs from that standard of holiness, and we're going to talk about this more in a moment, we lovingly say, look, this departure from a standard of holiness is not acceptable for a follower of Christ. And we'll talk more about that again in just a moment. The idea here is we can become a trap for others as we celebrate the sin that other people are involved in. We can become a a trap for others as we malign Christ in our conduct, as we celebrate sin. We can become a stumbling block for others as we discourage them in their walk with Christ. As we say things that are discouraging to them, as we handle our parenting in a discouraging way, as we exasperate our children with inconsistency, as we involve our our friends in in a way, and we, we talk to people in the church that's a discouraging way. There are a myriad of ways that we can become a trap to others. And if we're saying that we're supposed to exist within a community of faith and pursue holiness within a community of faith, we have to understand that as we place those stumbling blocks in people's lives, we present a very real danger to them. A few years ago, or maybe this last spring in 2011, it seemed like there were several stories about air traffic controllers falling asleep. Do you remember those? One person kind of fell asleep in a New York airport, and then uh, it was kind of an accidental thing, and no one could get get their attention on the radio. And then, then uh, I believe it was an air traffic controller in Oklahoma or something had, had intentionally laid out a sleeping bag and fallen asleep while on the job as an air traffic controller. That's not a good thing, right? We all heard those stories and, we, and, and were rightly as, as the FAA investigators, rightly, there was outrage. These people have other people's lives on the line in their job. 
Jesus understands that as we're living the Christian life, as we're living in obedience to him, we're living this life in, in the context of a community, and, and woe to us, woe to us, pain to us, displeasure to us, danger to us, if we live our lives in such a way that we cause those with whom we live in a community with to fall away from a holy God. Third thing, third thing about ways to pursue holiness within the context of the community of faith we are to show special care for weak disciples. You and I are to show special care for disciples who are weak. Verse 2, Jesus, as he's talking about the one through whom temptations come, draws our attention to a subgroup. He says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to, to sin. Now, a millstone would have been this, this stone that it was at the center of the community, kind of in the middle of the, maybe the village square or near the village square. And there would be this big stone basin type thing, and then this, this big millstone would be placed in this, this basin. There would be a whole through this stone that the grain could be fed through and to, to lie in the bottom of this basin. And, and then a donkey or some sort of animal would, would be attached to this millstone and kind of walk around in a circle crushing the grain. This millstone was a, a huge, heavy stone. And if you took, just imagine taking a rope, feeding it through that hole in the stone, and then tying it to yourself, and then being thrown into the sea, it wouldn't go well. You'd drown. And Jesus says it would be better, and that term that he uses there is like a, a term in the marketplace is you're making deals. It would be a better deal. It would be a better exchange to say, you know what? It's millstone drowning time. It would be better for you to do that than to engage in conduct in the community of faith that would cause little ones to stumble, that would cause little ones to fall away from the path that God has called them to walk. Do you get a sense of how important obedience to God is? And how seriously God takes our responsibility to others who are in this room, who are fellow members of our fellowship? When he uses the term little ones, I think in, in, in some contexts, whenever Jesus uses that phrase, he, he is thinking of children. I don't think that's a, a wrong application to make here. As we think about our responsibility to the, to the youngest members in our church, we say, you know what, what are the things that I need to do in, in order to make sure that these little ones don't stumble? How do I get involved in, in nursery and, and ch children's ministries? And, and how do I pray for the people who are? And, and in what ways do I make sure that I do everything I can to not cause one of these little ones that God has entrusted to our church, make sure that those little ones don't stumble? And if you're like me, every Sunday morning as you look around, you're just overwhelmed at the number of children that God has placed in our church and our incredible responsibility to them. And so I think that's a legitimate application. But I think also Jesus has in mind here those who are, are weaker in the faith, those who are kind of the, the new, newer members, perhaps, of the community of faith, new believers or weak believers, those who have maybe been believers for a long time but, but not grown and their understanding of the Lord. Jesus says, woe to us that we would cause one of these little ones to stumble. I'm reminded of what he says and of what Paul says in Romans 14. In Romans 14, as, he, as Paul is talking about the, the different types of, 
of uh, believers, the weaker brother, the stronger brother, and, and different things that cause different people to struggle. He says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I, say, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In other words, as you think about gray areas that aren't clearly defined in Scripture as you must do this or you can't do that, um, everyone needs to know that they should have as their focus the glory of God, and every one of us is going to have to stand before God and say, okay, God, here's why I thought it was okay to watch these shows or, or why I didn't think it was okay to, to, to watch these shows. Here's why I engaged in this ministry and not in that ministry. Here's why I spent my time this way and not that way. Every single one of us is going to give an account. And then in verse 13, of Romans 14, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, make a determination to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 17, 1 uh, of temptation. You and I make the decision never to place a stumbling block in the way of a weaker brother or sister. Do you see how that puts some restrictions on your conduct? It means when I'm around other people in a community of faith, I'm accountable not just for how I'm living the Christian life, and, and I don't boast in the freedom I have in Christ. I can do all these things in Christ. I say, you know what? Who are the weak disciples around me? Who are the little ones? Who are the children? Who are those who are, who are weak in the faith? And as I see them, and, and perhaps even some of these times these, these weaker disciples have a, a tendency to, to, to fall over smaller stumbling blocks, how can I approach them, not in a judgmental way, boy, I can't believe, I can't believe they're living that way, but how do I res respond to them in a way that's loving and careful and caring? Jesus says, woe to us. We cause someone to stumble, and if we're thinking about our, our plans, it would be better, it would be better for us to throw ourselves into the sea or be thrown into the sea with a millstone wrapped around us than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Think about it this way. We're going through a very, very tough, tough time in terms of, of weather right now, right? As we're kind of in this, this drought period. And there are some plants that are going to make it through this. I was talking to several people this week, and some even just this morning, about the different care that's required of, of different plants. And, and I was thinking even, uh, I have these, these new trees that we've planted in our house, and, and not in our house, around our house. And the, the, different, the, the, the type of watering we, we give to these, these young, frail trees that we don't give to our other established trees, they're going to make it okay. But sometimes you show special care to those that are, that are weak, on the edge of, of being able to survive or not even in their, in their faith. Community of faith loves those who are weak. A fourth way to pursue holiness within the context of community, a fourth way is to rebuke sinners with gentleness. Jesus says to verse 3, uh, pay attention to yourselves, uh, watch out, be on guard, and if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if, and if he repents, forgive him. And so here he begins, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If you see uh, a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, 
who is falling off that path, you have an obligation to correct that. We've been talking about, as we think about existing within the community of faith, we've been talking about some negative aspects of that. Don't do this, don't do that, uh, don't cause someone to stumble. Now we're getting into some of the positive aspects of the community of faith. If you see a brother or sister in Christ begin to veer from that path, you have a, a positive instruction, this is what you are supposed to do, to gently correct them. This isn't being a busybody. It doesn't say that uh, you need to spy on your brothers and sisters in Christ, and any time you see them kind of veering from the path, you let them have it. In fact, if you enjoy this, uh, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> but he is saying look, it's an imperative. It's a, it's a command. It's an instruction. You have a responsibility to confront a brother or sister who's in sin. And so often we say, yeah, I like this idea of community of faith. I, I love the idea of a community of faith because it's, it's a great social network. It's a great opportunity for friendships and potlucks and things like that. But here's where the relationships get real. As we see brothers or sisters in Christ, and we say, you know, I have a responsibility to, to talk with them about where they are spiritually. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 14, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, verse 14, says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. In other words, there's a confrontational process that, that needs to take place when a person is, is falling away from God. Matthew 18 kind of describes the, the manner and the process in which we correct a person. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then he talks about the, the corporate authority that the church has as it exercises authority under its head, Jesus Christ. You and I have the responsibility to rebuke sinners with, with gentleness. It takes place within the context of, of community. This, and it, that means that this, this community shouldn't be just a bunch of people sitting by each other on a Sunday morning. It means there should be real and, and intimate interaction that takes place within our members. I think about the sanctifying work of marriage and, and how in a marriage relationship there's, there's accountability and, and there's knowing each other. You're familiar enough to, to say, look, hey, this is what's going on in your life and this is what's going on in my life and let's, let's hold each other accountable. I was reading a story this last week about Harry Shearer, who's, who's kind of a comedian, writer. He was talking about how he married his wife, uh, who was from Britain. He married her in 1993. And they had to go in front of an immigration official and, and kind of explain that this wasn't just a green card marriage, that there really was a real relationship. And so his, his wife was very concerned about this, and she spent weeks just gathering all the necessary paperwork. She gathered receipts and she got, of all the things they'd done together, pictures of them going places together, and she brought into the meeting two shopping bags full of, of just documentation showing we are in a relationship. They sat down in front of the immigration official, and she asked her first question. She said, so what date were you married? 
And Harry Shearer answers, uh, March 29th, 1993, and his wife looked at him. She nudged him with her elbow, and she says, March 28th. Lady looked at them, yeah, you guys are married. Yeah. <laughs> You're good to go. There's this sanctifying work that takes place in relationships, right, when we're real with one another. Other people can see that. It should be true in the community of faith as well. There should be a gentleness, a loving correction that takes place. Galatians talks about this as well in our, in our relationships in this community of faith. Next, next point, uh, number five. Number five is we think about ways to pursue holiness. Forgive those who've wronged. Forgive those who've wronged you. He says, Jesus says in, in Luke 17, verse 3, he said that now if you correct, you rebuke, and then now if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, you must forgive him. There's an obligation upon you to extend forgiveness. In other words, we're looking again at a, another positive effect of, of living within the context of a, of a community of faith. As a person acknowledges that they've sinned and comes to you, there should be a, a, a willingness on your part to release them from their obligation to pay you back. This morning, if, if we left and we got into the parking lot and I was in a hurry and I wasn't looking where I was going and I, I bumped into your car, I could make restitution. I could, could fix whatever dent I caused in your car. I could, my insurance would pay for that, and, or I would pay for it. And somehow, I could, I could get your car back to what it was supposed to be like. I, I, could, I could make restitution. But when I hurt you relationally, there's nothing I can do to, to make perfect restitution. It's like instead of bumping your car. I walked into your home, and I was just kind of being clumsy, and I, and I knocked over a, a vase that your great-grandmother had personally made, a, a family heirloom, and it's there in a million pieces. There's nothing I can do to restore that. Relationally, what happens in a, in a relationship whenever someone sins against someone else there's nothing we can, can do to, to take away that sin on ourselves. We, we, we can't make those words never have been said. We can't go back in time and, and make that, that thing that I did to you never have happened. It exists. And because it exists and because there's nothing I can do to make re perfect restitution, I'm in your debt. I owe you something. And so what I need from you and this is key in the context of a community that's pursuing holiness together. What I need from you is something that I can't give myself. I need your forgiveness. For us to be restored into relationship, I need you to say, yeah, I forgive you. I, I, you owe me. You owe me relationally. And what I'm doing now is I'm releasing you from that obligation. There's nothing I can do to earn that. There's nothing I can do to deserve that. I simply throw myself on your mercy, and you offer that to me. That's what takes place in a relationship. And, and brothers and sisters, if this church is going to be a church that pursues Christ together, that pursues holiness within the context of a community, forgiveness must be a recurring event on a day-by-day -day basis within families, on a day-by-day -day basis within our relationships that are extended beyond our families. It's true both individually and corporately, isn't it? 
In other words, I need individual forgiveness. I need you to be willing to forgive me as I wrong you. You need me to be willing to forgive you as you wrong me. But you know what else? We need to be a church that practices corporate forgiveness as sinners repent. You remember that, remember that passage I told you about in 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Corinthians 5? We went, we went there and we, we talked about that, that person that had been involved in that sin. Paul talks about that, that person again. He talks about them in, in 2 Corinthians, and, and he talks about the, the need to, to offer forgiveness for that person. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, now if anyone's caused pain, he's not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him so that he may not become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You see what's happening there? They had listened to what Paul said about this, this guy who had, who had been involved in this sin, and they'd shunned him, and now he was trying to come back and seek forgiveness, and they were continuing to shun him. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No, as a person turns and repents and asks for forgiveness, you must, you must extend it to him and let him back in relationally. We're a church that holds to holiness, and we're a church that practices what, what some people call church discipline. We're, we're, when a person names the name of Jesus Christ and yet continues to live in a way that's just blatantly disobedient to Christ and refuses to acknowledge that it's sin, so this is Matthew 18, he refuses to listen. We're going to tell that person, look, you're not part of the community of faith. You show no signs of, of living in obedience to Jesus Christ. We're not sure if you're a believer. That's, that's the worst part of being a shepherd of the flock is, is seeing a person turn away from Christ. What must take place in a community of faith if we're going to pursue holiness is a joyful welcoming back of people who seek forgiveness. It's true individually and it's true corporately. We are a community of faith who loves to see sinners turn back to Jesus Christ. Forgive those who've wronged you. You need forgiveness and someone must sacrifice to give it to you. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice to give you forgiveness. Other people are going to sacrifice to give you forgiveness. You must sacrifice to offer forgiveness to others who've wronged you deeply. Last point about ways to pursue holiness within the context of our community of faith. Have faith in Christ. Have faith in Christ. I love what the disciples, the disciples here are right where I would be. Jesus has just said these words about forgiveness, and they look at each other, and they, and they say, what? Are you kidding me? Seven times in a day? That's not genuine repentance. We're all, you know, that's not genuine repentance. Why should I forget? I can maybe once, but twice, three times, seven times? That person's just messing with me. And the disciples hear what he's saying, and they say, look, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to believe you on this teaching. And, and what does Christ say? He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, some people have taken this passage and say, look, we can do miraculous things. We can, we can do landscaping in faith. You know. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is saying, look, the extraordinary things that I call you to do within this community, the extraordinary things I tell you to do about confronting people in sin and, and forgiving them, the extraordinary things I, I call you to do about, about watching out for temptations and being aware that those things exist and, and not causing a stumbling block to others, those are really, really difficult things. You cannot do them on your own. And the apostles hear Jesus say these things and say, we, and say, we got nothing. This type of conduct that you want us to have with each other, we can't even agree about who's the best among us 12, much less all these other things that you're asking us to do. We need faith. You come into the community of faith by faith. You become a believer not by forgiving people. You become a believer not by confronting people in sin perfectly. You become a believer by recognizing your great need and placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And you continue in the community of faith by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your sanctification, for your continued walk with him. You cannot live in isolation. God calls you to exercise a faith that is alive and produces fruit and action. You cannot live the Christian life in isolation. God has called us to pursue holiness within the context of community through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the holiness, the righteousness that you offer us through faith in your Son. We thank you for the opportunity to pursue it by faith in your Son. We pray that you would give us great grace great faith in you alone. We pray this in the context of a community. We pray this as a church seeking peace with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.